This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. Each week I go through a ton of reading and research, and on Saturday mornings I send out a free email to subscribers with the five things that I found most valuable during the previous week. That could be a chart, a link, a tweet, what have you. Uh, if you're interested in signing up for something like this, just go to thefelderreport.com right there on the homepage. Click join now and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is John Hussman. At just 17 years old, John's introduction to the world of finance was a job hand-drying charts for an investment advisor who just happened to like his handwriting. From that point on, he was hooked on markets. After receiving his PhD in economics from Stanford in 1992, he went on to found Hussman Strategic Advisors and has been managing equity portfolios ever since. In this episode, John discusses how he developed his value-conscious, historically-informed, full-cycle investment discipline over the past 40 years, and how he's implementing it today to navigate one of the most overvalued, overbought, and overbullish markets of all time. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with John Hussman. Ever wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. John Hussman, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to talk to you, Jesse. I've been, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Well, you were one of the, when I first started my podcast, you know, you were one of the first people I invited to be on. You were one of the first people I thought of. Uh, I, drag honestly, my, I drag my feet. I, I, I don't do very many of these, but uh, you were high on the list. Well, I appreciate that. And, and I'm, I'm super excited to do this. I, you know, I got to start out with, um, you know, I, I've noticed just, there's the various photographic evidence out there that you are a guitar player, singer, and you had a successful <laughs> band in college. Yep. And so I'm just curious, how did you go from that to pursuing a doctorate in economics? <laughs> so the funny thing about uh, playing in a band is that um, when I was in college, uh, I used to um, do a lot of recording in the studio. And uh, I was I was doing some some work. Uh, there was there was a band on campus that wanted to do some recording. And I had written out some, uh, you know, some music. Uh, for that. And there was a uh, DJ uh, from one of the local radio stations that also uh, worked as an investment advisor. And he saw my handwriting, you know, my, my music notation. And he said, wow, I, I really like your block lettering. And this was when I was, I don't know, 18 or probably 17. Uh, and he asked me to uh, do charts for him by hand. Uh, and so basically you would get the Wall Street Journal and you'd open it up and you would chart high, low, close. And uh, he liked the uh, volume numbers put in. And so I would write the block letters for that. Uh, and that was one of my first jobs in college. Uh, I got 75 bucks a week, which is not bad money for a college student. You know, when I was uh, at the time, uh, you know, doing maybe three hours a week to do these hand made charts. And that's how I got interested in the stock market. So I've been doing this for about 40 years now. Uh, and, uh, you know, professionally for about uh, 36. But yeah, the my original introduction to the financial markets was because I 
wrote nice musical notation. Well, that makes perfect sense. It's a you know perfect segue. So, so the pr- pursuing the uh, the economics degree was um, due to your interest in finance. So, uh, I actually was was an econ major already. Actually, uh, the the whole you know background is a little odd because. Um, I was actually raised to be a physician from about the point where I was a zygote because both of my parents are, uh, you know, are medical doctors. Uh, my mom uh, is still a practicing pediatrician. Uh, and so I was actually raised to be a doctor. Um, I do not like blood. And so, uh, so I, I actually skipped to, uh, to economics from pre-med, um, and, uh, I was fascinated by numbers and, you know, numerical analysis and all this sort of stuff, uh, mathematical modeling. Uh, and so I got involved in that. And what's, what's kind of interesting is that, um, you know, when I was, uh, an academic economist, in the, um, you know, in the, uh, what, uh, mid nineties. Yeah. Um, I actually abandoned, um, academic economics, uh, after my son JP was diagnosed with autism and I threw myself back into, uh, you know, medical research and biological research and genetics and so forth. And so, uh, so I've got this, this, uh, second, life uh, through the Hussman Foundation and the Hussman Institute for uh, Human Genomics down at uh, the University of Miami. Uh, And we've got an institute for autism here in Maryland. Uh, And so I've kind of thrown myself into, uh, on the charitable side, uh, a lot of biological work. Uh, But in finance, the goal was actually not so much to go into the financial markets. I actually wanted to be a um, a development economist uh, and uh, advise you know developing countries uh, and so forth. And about my second year uh, into my doctoral program at Stanford, I realized that I would be beating my head against the wall for the rest of my life because we actually know a lot of the economic uh, approaches that are helpful. Uh, but, uh, but the political will to, uh, to implement some of these was just not something that I thought I would be able to, uh, to affect. And so I thought, Hmm, all right, well, if, if the mission is to serve others, if the, you know, that's the, uh, there's, there's your vocation and there's your mission. How do you figure out how to, uh, find a vocation that feeds your mission? Uh, I thought, well, I, enjoy finance. I, I, I love it. Uh, and, uh, I'm good at it. Um, people wouldn't know that from my 2012 to 2017 experience, but again, I've been doing this for about 40 years. Uh, I decided, well, let me go into finance and I can use the finance to fund charity. Uh, and that's actually what we've done. Um, you know, essentially over the last 30 years, uh, with the Hussman foundation, um, you know, basically uh, using what I do in finance to uh, to fund a lot of charitable work. Well, I, I love your distinction between vocation and mission. I think that's, you know, uh, critical. And I think, you know, a lot of people don't really do that. And I applaud your, your motives. I think it's, for me, it's one of the reasons I was drawn to your work. It's a breath of fresh air. 
um, especially on on Wall Street. So um, I, I applaud that. How did so? How did you make the transition? You were actually, I think, you got your PhD at Stanford, and then yep. you were teaching economics uh, at Michigan. Um, how did you transition to finance from that point? Well, so I actually, um, even before I, I went to uh, Stanford, I right out of college, um, I actually uh, had had a little bit of leeway in terms of actually getting a job uh, because I was I was able to live cheaply on band wages. Uh, and so, you know, we would play gigs, uh, you know, on the weekends and I would use the money, uh, to, um, to basically finance, uh, economic research. I, I went over to, uh, the, the old Vogelback computing center, uh, which was basically, you know, a building under a small hill of dirt, uh, at Northwestern university. And, uh, it was, it, it was like a bomb shelter, and you could go in there and everything was on punch cards. And so I would basically get as much data as I could on the stock market and on individual stocks and so forth. And I would run econometric uh, estimates. And again, back then, you know, you'd walk up with your stack with a rubber band around it and you'd hand it to a grad student. And, you know, 30 minutes later, you would get uh, your stack back with a printout, you know, wrapped around it, and you would see whether you made a mistake. And usually, you know, the first few times out, it would it was a fatal error, and you'd be running through all your cards trying to figure out, you know, what semicolon you left out. Uh, and so I learned a ton of uh, computer programming and a ton of, you know, financial analysis and a ton of, uh, you know, mathematical modeling back then. And I started my own little advisory in 1985. Uh, and so when I was a grad student at North at, at um, uh, Stanford, I actually ran a newsletter out of my dorm room, and uh, you know, and and kept that up. And so by the time I was out uh, of graduate student, I was uh, graduate school. I was managing. Uh, money and 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 publishing newsletter and that sort of thing and I uh, developed a very good stock selection record. Uh, people don't know that uh, in the early you know uh, early part of the '90s, uh, you know when the market really took off after the 1990 bear market, uh, you know I was I was known as a lonely raging bull, uh, according to the uh, I think the LA Times um, and. Uh, you know, the, basically, I was leveraged uh, for a good part of the early 90s uh, and then became more bearish in the late 90s. Uh, I was teaching at the time that was right around the time that, uh, you know, JP was diagnosed and we decided to move to Florida uh, to uh, to get him, uh, you know, more services, better care. Uh, and uh, so we we moved to Florida for a few years uh, for schooling for him there. Uh, and I went full time into the advisory business. Uh, and so, you know, uh, you know, kept up, kept up that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we had a good, we, we had a very good run for uh, pretty much up until the time that the Fed became deranged. And then I had, you know, a horrible nightmare. And then I woke up and 
late 2017, and you know we we have moved on. <laughs> well, I, I want to get to that, uh, you know, the, the Fed, but before we do, um, I, I want to dig into your process a little bit. You're now sure. the president of Hussman Strategic Advisors. You describe the process, the investment process, as a value conscious historically informed, full-cycle investment discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain that in a little bit more detail? Yeah. So uh, so value conscious really is, is focused on the idea that when you buy a security, you're actually buying something. And it's not just a, you know, a piece of paper that goes up and down in price. It's actually a claim to something. And that claim is on some future stream of cash flows, that will be delivered into your hands over time. And if you start thinking about securities that way, you start realizing that the price you pay has an enormous tether to the long-term return you're going to get. Not necessarily the short-term return. Let's be very clear about that. But for example, uh, suppose I, you know, I buy an individual security, and it's it's only got one payment to it, uh, and that one payment is a hundred dollars that I'm going to get ten years from now. Well, if I pay thirty two dollars today for that hundred dollar payment ten years from now, uh, well, we can do the math here, and I'm going to do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're going to get a twelve percent annual return on that investment. So, you know, you buy that future cash flow at 32 bucks, you're going to get $100 at the end. That's a 12% annualized rate of return. But the higher the price you pay, the lower the return you're going to lock in. To the point where if you pay $100 today for $100 10 years from now, you're going to get nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that some investor can't come in and decide they want to pay $110 for that security. And guess what? If they do and you keep on holding it, even though the price is $110, you're going to set yourself a path of actually losing money over time. So the valuation part of this, the value conscious part of this, really comes down to understanding that every single security that I buy is uh, is a claim on something. It's a claim on some future cash flow that I have to think about uh, in terms of its its relationship with the price that I'm paying and the return that I'm expecting. Now, that's the value conscious part. The historically informed part is exactly that. You know, when, when I was um, you know uh, right out of right out of college and I was uh, you know playing in a band and I. I actually worked at WLS Radio in their programming division, um, you know, picking songs, uh, you know, to, for, um, you know, for airplay, for the rotation. Uh, I couldn't type. Larry Lujak, my hero, walked over and he looked at me henpecking and he said, you really should learn to type, which was probably the most um, embarrassing moment that I had <laughs> in my 20s is, is having Larry Lujak telling me I l- had to learn how to type. But, you know, you even back then, all of that historical research, you know, running that in Vogelback uh, really started me on a path of respecting the fact that if you're going to look at any sort of an economic indicator or a financial market indicator, 
you have an obligation to actually test whether it actually has any relationship to what you are trying to achieve. In other words, total return. If it doesn't, uh, then you're forced to actually think carefully about it. Uh, and so, um, you know, there are a lot of valuation measures that people throw out and they're garbage. They're absolute garbage in terms of their correlation with subsequent returns. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, that that I used for years, uh, for you know, prior to uh, the the point where the Federal Reserve lost its marbles and became essentially deranged, uh, and I say deranged in 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 a kind way, it's deranged outside of the range, but I frankly think it was also deranged. Um, one of the things that I used a lot prior to that was uh, a set of historical measures that would tell you that that speculation had gone to uh, to extremes. And when you saw those things, the market would usually collapse. And so, you know, that was one of the things in our repertoire. Another thing in our repertoire, uh, of course, is all these valuation measures that that I think I'm reasonably well known for uh, in terms of you know, relating these things to subsequent long-term returns. Another thing that we developed, uh, that I developed in the late 90s, in 1998, uh, in the face of the tech bubble, was to ask the question, well, look, we know that an overvalued market doesn't just drop on its own, because if it did, you could never have gotten to valuations like 1929. You could never have gotten to valuations like 2000, if overvaluation was enough to drive a market down. And so I really struggled uh, for, for a couple of years, especially 1997, um, to try and figure out, all right, well, how do we figure out, how do we distinguish between an overvalued market that keeps on getting overvalued and an overvalued market that drops like a rock? And the thing that distinguishes that uh, again, this is the historically informed piece of our discipline. The thing that distinguishes that is uh, the uniformity. When, when people are very speculatively minded, they tend to be indiscriminate about it. And so we started, you know, if you look at um, market action across a very wide range of securities, when people have the bit in their teeth, they tend to be indiscriminate about uh, chasing them. And so, you know, I developed this measure of, of uh, uniformity, and we can talk about that later. But that's another one of these pieces of, you know, historically informed uh, management. And, and so what came out of that second piece is valuations, you know, market internals, which, again, we've been using since 98, uh, and then this this third piece, which is really the piece that failed in this cycle, which is uh, those overvalued, overbought, overbullish extremes, which historically did a really good job of notifying you that the market was about to take an air pocket or a crash or a or a panic, and in this cycle, <laughs> did not help at all. Um, you know, but that's the historically informed piece, and then the full cycle piece is the last one, which is that I don't think investors realize how forgiving 
risk management actually is. Uh, and so, so um, you know, to talk about the full cycle piece is, is for example, to understand that, um, that, well, let's take an example. If you look at the period from May 1995 to March 2009, that's 14 years, uh, the S&P 500 had two bubbles. It had the tech bubble and it also had the mortgage bubble. Yet between May 1995 and March 2009, the S&P 500 total return, including dividends, actually underperformed T-bills. Why? Because you started with uh, a semi-overvalued level of valuations. You got even worse, but you started semi-overvalued, but you ended at uh, a relatively depressed level of valuations. And that transition, that very long period of time, you had several, you had a couple of cycles, and yet you didn't make any money because of, of the valuation in this case that you ended up with. But let's take another one, uh, August 59 to August 1982. Again, very, very long period of time uh, that, that, that you had there from 1959 to 1982, and yet you underperformed T-bills in total return. Uh, another one, obviously, was uh, August 1929 to August 1945. Underperformed T-bills. Why? All of these pieces have common denominators. All of these, um, you know, uh, times where you go nowhere in an interesting way have a common denominator that either you've started at extreme valuations, you've ended at depressed valuations, or some combination of both. And those periods actually account for 53 of the 80 years between 1929 and 2009. So, you know, risk management, when you get into a very overvalued market, uh, especially one where the bit drops out of people's teeth, uh, and that's this market internals piece that I, that I mentioned earlier, and we can talk about uh, a little more, um, you know, when, when you get speculators and, and risk aversion starts setting in, uh, you can have very, very, very long periods of time where investors actually lag T-bills. And so we're, we're very careful in terms of thinking about the full cycle. Uh, you know, where are we in the full cycle? Are we, you know, at, at reasonable levels of valuation combined with, uh, you know, a, a willingness of investors to speculate or are we at extreme levels of valuation where speculation is starting to back off? Uh, and, you know, we have to navigate that whole cycle. And that whole cycle is, is, is actually why most people know about me, even though they don't know they know about me that way, because I wouldn't actually have a name if I didn't do enormously well, if I hadn't done enormously well for, uh, for about the first three quarters of my career. Uh, and so we had a stumble and we can talk about that as well. I love to talk about that because it's really important for people to gain a lesson from that. Um, but, uh, you know, when you, um, I saw you, uh, put a note on Twitter, I'm talking to John Hussman, what would you like to ask him? And someone said, said, well, when will he capitulate? And I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, the market, <laughs> The market, uh, the S&P hit uh, a record high on Thursday, and over the past year, I've outperformed the S&P. So I don't quite know that people actually 
realize that I learned my lesson way back in 2017. Um, but again, there are pieces here. Value well, conscious, was, historically informed, full cycle. And to me, the, the historically informed piece of that is, you know, maybe all you need. <laughs> uh, you know, to me, <laughs> if you just understanding somebody's look back period, you probably, you know, you can understand their investment process, right? <laughs> there are people yeah. that are looking back literally just to March, um, you know, the, the March lows of last year, yeah. you, you can, you know, that's your look back period. And then I can, I can get why you're, you know, buying, uh, you know, YOLO call options. Um, you know, if you're looking back to 2009 lows, you know, kind of same thing. But if you're looking back, you know, longer than that, and, and a lot of your valuation metrics look back, you know, 100 years. So I, I want to dig into those a little bit, because sure. I think there's there's some some they're really important. Um, I think I, I, I remember you writing or tweeting Robert Schiller was your dissertation advisor. Is that no, uh, so so when I uh, was doing my doctorate at uh, Stanford, uh, my my uh, dissertation was actually on a problem that people hadn't solved at a time, which was the infinite recursion problem, uh, which is you know uh, the uh, Keynes described it as as you have to figure out not only what the other person thinks, but also what the other person thinks. Uh, that the other person thinks, and so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, and so, um, you know, my dissertation was about uh, market equilibrium uh, in the face of uh, disparate information. Uh, and it was a rational expectations paper, but I, we, you know, it, it also considered noise uh, and noise traders. And so Robert Schiller was one of the, um, you know, people who I just, loved his papers. I loved his research, uh, especially on excess volatility in the markets. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I continue to really respect him uh, as, as a researcher. I think he's, uh, I, I think he's just a, a really original thinker. Probably for me, um, I've been a little disappointed in the collaborations because I think they have, they have led him to uh, to put his name on things that, that may not, mm, I want to be careful about how I say this, that, uh, that, that may not, uh, that may not fully take into account, um, the, the true nature of the relationship between, for example, um, asset pricing and interest rates. Well, I mean, the only reason I bring his name up is because I think, uh, you know, in finance circles, he's most famous for his valuation metric, the CAPE ratio. Um, you know, you're, to me, a lot of people point to the CAPE as, you know, well, we're not at dot-com bubble levels based on the CAPE ratio. Um, you've developed some other you know, valuation metrics. Um, you have your margin adjusted, which to me is one of the most fascinating ones, um, you know, to, to look at. Why do you see, um, I, I guess, where did these valuation metrics come from? And yeah. why do you see them? You know, you mentioned, and I'm, I know you weren't talking about CAPE, but, you know, trailing PD ratios, forward PE ratios have, you know, essentially zero value. Um, you know, what makes yours, uh, explain, you know, some of the ones you've developed, you know, most sure. notably the MAPE and, and why you believe it is uniquely valuable. 
Sure. Uh, and I should say forward PEs are of some value. They're certainly of more value than trailing PEs, but, but we can get into some of, some of that. Basically, what happens is this. If you think very seriously about stocks being a claim to future cash flows, one of the things that should immediately be obvious is that you're not buying today's cash flow or next year's cash flow. You're buying 50, 60, 70 years of future cash flows. And you might say, well, the company will get taken out at some point in that 50 years. Well, fine. Take the takeout value that you're going to get, put a date on it. That's a cash flow, right? So every stock is a claim on some stream of future cash flows that I, as an investor, can expect to be delivered into my hands if I hold that security over the long term. And that's how we can think about its value. Well, if you think about a security that way, it becomes clear that one year of cash flows this year or next year, or next quarter, um, is only a tiny piece. You could wipe it away and it would only have minimal effect on the very long term stream. Uh, people try and make inferences about the long-term stream from the quarterly revenue, certainly. So, you know, so you can have, you know, the, the market uh, become exuberant or depressed uh, over a single earnings report or something like that. But from a cash flow perspective, really what's going on is that you're buying a whole long stream of this stuff. And so during a recession, one of the things that, that uh, I noticed, you know, when I was doing research uh, in the 80s is that, you know, during a recession, earnings will collapse typically and price earnings ratios will soar. And very often they will soar exactly at the point where stocks are a screaming buy from a long term perspective. And the reason they don't look that way is because the P.E. is high, the denominator is misleading. And so back in the 80s, um, I developed my first cut at uh, sort of normalizing this stuff uh, by, by basically saying, all right, well, let's, let's not just look at the current level of earnings. Let's look at the highest level of earnings that stocks have ever, you know, that the, the S&P, you can't quite do this with individual stocks because sometimes the business is just failing. Uh, but for the S&P itself, you know, you can say, well, what's the S&P divided by the highest level of earnings that the S&P has ever earned to date? Uh, and I called that my price to peak earnings ratio. Um, and uh, Alan Abelson, uh, the, uh, who used to uh, write for Barron's magazine, uh, picked that up. And he was, he, was, he was a lovely guy. I miss him a lot because he was... He had a curmudgeonly way of, of thinking about uh, the markets in a serious way. Uh, but, you know, he, he ran that, that piece, which was the price to peak earnings measure. And I got a little bit of, um, you know, press from that. But that was my first cut. And basically, the idea was that you're not just buying the current level of earnings. You have to adjust that in some way for uh, its variation over the cycle. About the same time, Robert Schiller 
uh, you know, developed developed uh, a price to the ten-year average earnings, uh, and he does a little inflation inflation adjustment in there. But he used that, uh, and and you know, uh, Ben Graham talked about uh, you know ten-year averages of earnings and that sort of thing way back. So this is something that value investors have thought about for some time: is is what's actually representative. Because if you're doing any sort of a valuation, quote, multiple, you have to ask the question, multiple of what? And is the denominator that I'm using representative? Is it a sufficient statistic does it, that's proportional to the very, very long term stream of cash flows that I'm going to get? You know, I used to I used to be fascinated by auto stocks back in the 80s, um, you know, because because when when the economy would be doing well, you know, auto stocks would sell at price earnings ratios of like three or four. And you'd think to yourself, wow, three, a, a PE of three, that must be wildly undervalued. But that. PE of three was based on peak earnings. It was based on, you know, top of the cycle earnings. And over the full cycle, you know, you would get much more variation. And so you couldn't take that at face value. And so all of these measures that I've put together over time are basically trying to respect the idea that stocks are a claim on a long-term stream of cash flows, not just on one year. Uh, margin adjustment is hugely important. People think, well, you know, the margins, you know, the mar- profit margins that we that we have today are going to uh, persist because of technology da, 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 and labor costs and da, 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 da. well, careful here, because over time, we're not talking about the margin this year, next year, and the year after that. You're buying stocks based on what the margin is going to be 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. You don't think you are, but you are, right? You're 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 buying a very 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 long term stream of cash flows. In fact, you can you can pretty much peg the quote duration of the stock, the average you know date at which you're going to get your money uh, by by doing a simple calculation is just the price dividend ratio. Uh, because basically, uh, you can prove mathematically that that uh, the cash flows that you're going to get if you and, and by the way, as as quote dividend, I do include as a quote dividend, any buyout price that you know, you might eventually get from selling your stock or from having your stock taken over in some distant future. And you can't quite know that. But for the S&P 500 itself, I'll tell you right now, the duration of the S&P 500 is well over 60 years. So you're not bargaining for next year's you know, profit margin. You're bargaining for decades and decades and decades of them. And that said, if you are um, looking at uh, you know, effects of of competition over the short run, you also have to think about competition over the long run. The fact is that companies compete not on the basis of pre-tax margins. They compete on the basis of after-tax margins because that's what they actually get. So if you get changes in tax policy, yeah, for a while, you'll get a little boost to to earnings, even after-tax earnings. But over time, all of this stuff gets whittled 
by competition. And it, so, so the, uh, the margin that you use matters. And it turns out, if you look historically, that if you correct valuations for the embedded profit margin, you get a much stronger correlation between that valuation measure and the subsequent return on the market. I won't scare you and say that it's actually most useful to use the log of the valuation measure, uh, but uh, that's the truth. And, and the simple way to think about that, if you know anything about logarithms, is that you know if you, if you have the number two, so double the historical norm, or if you have the number 0.5, half the historical norm, intuitively, those two states of the world should have roughly opposite effect uh, on long-term returns. Logarithms make that clear because the log of two is just the negative of the log of one half. They're, they're, they're inverse. Uh, and so, so basically, you know, I, I see people do this all the time. They, they, they use a linear relationship between valuation ratios and subsequent returns and they don't realize that it's actually a relationship with the logs. But wow, I just have totally geeked your audience out. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. It's fantastic. And I do think that the point of pro about profit margins is something that really, I mean, it's one of the, the demonstrations of just how historically informed your work is. Because I, I do think a lot of people just look at the last you know, 20 years and yeah. say, well, profit margins have been elevated and they're, they're going to be elevated going forward. And, and just even if they're not uh, consciously looking at that, they're making that subconscious assumption based on using a, a number of other valuation metrics. Um, I, so using MAPE and some of the other things, you know, price to uh, peak earnings and what have you, sure. some of these more valuable um, indicators what is the message, uh, you know, that, that, that you're getting from, from your valuation indicators at present? So it's interesting. And, and people can see a whole lot of my charts. If you go to my Twitter feed, uh, Hussman JP, uh, you can see a ton of my research there. And I, and I publish a, uh, a monthly comment as well. Um, you know, but if you look at some of those valuation metrics, uh, and you look at the ones that are best correlated with very long-term returns in the market, um, you will find that uh, the, the ratio of current valuations to run-of-the-mill historical norms, not, not extraordinary things, literally run-of-the-mill historical norms that have historically generated run-of-the-mill long-term returns. We're at about 3.5 times those norms. It is breathtaking. It's beyond what we were in 29, and it's beyond what we were in 2000. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I, I sent you a note, said, said I know I've put this off, but uh, this might be a good time to do that interview, uh, because I really wanted to talk about the extremes that are going on in the market right now. If you do uh, a quick ratio, which is one divided by three and a half, uh, you get 0 0.28. And that's, that's essentially um, where the market would have to fall relative to $1 today in order to simply touch those historical norms. Now, I realize that the very first thing that 
nearly everyone said was, well, yeah, but the Fed. Okay, that's fine. Let's talk about the Fed. Um, First of all, let's be clear what the Fed actually does. The Fed buys interest-bearing securities and replaces them with zero-interest cash that somebody must hold at every single moment in time until that cash is retired. There is no such thing as cash on the sidelines because there are no sidelines. If you have a dollar of that zero-interest cash burning a hole in your pocket, the only way to get rid of it and buy stocks is you go ahead and buy those stocks and guess where the dollar goes? In the hands of the seller, right? So now that person owns this zero-interest hot potato burning a hole in their pocket. And that will continue on and on and on as long as people are uncomfortable earning zero returns. And so what do they do in response to that horrible discomfort of earning nothing on this security that somebody has to hold at every moment in time? Well, they chase something else that they think will do better. And what they have chased are bonds, longer-term bonds, T-bills, obviously, were the first choice, and that's why interest rates are zero pretty much on T-bills. But they also chased stocks. And they have chased stocks to the point where the valuations are so extreme that you're also likely to get essentially a zero, I I would actually estimate, uh, over the next 12 years, Uh, Our estimate of S&P 500 nominal total returns is about negative 4.4%. We can call it zero, but it's not good, (laughs) Uh, at least in terms of uh, things that have a uh, 90% plus correlation with actual subsequent returns. So, So what people really mean when they say, well, you know, stocks are, you know, very high Valuations are very high, but they're, quote, justified by zero interest rates. What they really mean is stocks are at levels that are likely to give you no return, but that's justified because you're not going to get returns in these other assets in bonds either. And so it's basically like saying, well, you know, as, as, I, as I've often said, it's, it's like saying that that um, that poking yourself in the eye justifies slamming your thumb with a hammer. It's justified in a really weird way to say, you know, and that way is to say, well, I'm getting no return over here. So I'm going to bid up this other asset. So I also set myself up to get no return there. And I think that's essentially where we're at. Um, and And let's do a little experiment and I'll give you a sense of how vulnerable investors are. So right now we're at about 3.5 times historical norms. I honestly believe that over the next cycle, possibly over two, like we saw from you know 2000 to 2009 when the market lost half of its value, but over nine years instead of three, um, I think we're in a situation where stocks very well, the S&P 500 could very well lose about two thirds of its value possibly even 70%, in order to simply touch historical norms. But let's assume that the Fed is able to prevent that by holding interest rates 
at zero nonstop. Well, here's the deal with the devil. If you have elevated valuations, you're also essentially guaranteeing below average long-term returns. Um, Right now, we're, uh, if you look at structural economic growth, uh, back in, you know, the 50s and 60s, and even in some of the 70s, uh, we had, as a nation, structural real GDP growth uh, of over 3% annual. Uh, and that was a combination of demographic, labor force growth, uh, trend productivity growth, and so forth. You had, you had about, you know, uh, 3.5% uh, structural economic growth, and then you added to that, uh, you know, a moderate rate of inflation, uh, a little over three percent. And so, what you got uh, for much of history, much of post-war history, was was uh, earnings growth and dividend growth and revenue growth and nominal GDP growth of nearly seven percent annually. Well, right now. We have, over the last two decades, uh, had a decline in structural economic growth, real economic growth, down to about what is now about 1.6% annually. Uh, That may change a little bit, uh, you know, if productivity growth picks up a little bit or if uh, demographic labor force growth picks up a little bit, but it's not going to get back to those, those former levels. It's not that elastic. So we're looking at about 1.6% structural growth. Let's add a couple of percent in inflation. You're up to 3.6. Maybe you get up to 4% nominal growth. And so now let's assume that valuations stay the same forever and prices grow at the same rate as fundamentals do. And so valuation multiples stay exactly constant. Well, in that state of the world, what do you have? You have 4% nominal growth. You add about 1.5% in dividend yield. And if the Federal Reserve is able to maintain these valuations forever, for not just one year, not just five years, forever, at the highest levels in history, well, then you'll get about 5.5%, I would estimate, in long-term total return. Now, you might say, well, 5%, 5.5% in a zero-interest rate economy, da-da-da-da-da, is okay. Yeah, except, now let's ask a question, how sensitive is that 5.5% to very, 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 very small changes in our assumptions? And so let's do this. Let's assume that that 1.5% dividend yield just goes up to 1.6, just 10 basis points. Well, you can grab your calculator, 1.5 divided by 1.6, and guess what? You've lost 6.25%. So that wipes out more than a year of your return. Interesting statistic. The median dividend yield not the lowest one, not the highest one, the median one, since 2000, during the bubble years, uh, has been about 2% annually. Now, historically, looking back longer term, it's been about 4 But right now, it's about, it, it, over the last couple of decades, during these bubble years, which, by the way, have also been associated with 
below average returns if you look at the return that you've actually gotten from 2000. Uh, you know, you've gotten about 6% you know, annual return since 2000, but only by getting to the most extreme valuations in history. Well, if you move the dividend yield from just 1.5% to 2% five years from now, well, that change in valuations is a 5.6% annual drag on returns, and that wipes out your 5.5. So now, even in the smallest change in valuations, you've wiped out five full years of total return. That's how sensitive your assumptions have to be to not changing at all. In order to uh, in order to do well at extreme valuations, um, it's much much more robust, by the way, at, at at depressed valuations. Why? Because if you're if you're looking at a four percent yield, well, if the, if a four percent yield goes up to four point one, that's you know that's basically a two point four percent change in return, right? And you've already got four just in the dividend yield itself. Uh, and so one of the things that we know about valuations is when valuations are depressed, your investment horizon can be much shorter and still make stocks reasonable to hold, even for a relatively conservative investor. But when valuations are extreme, as they are right now, your horizon has to be enormous. And you are very sensitive to very small changes in valuations. And so we have to be very careful about whether people have the speculative bit in their teeth or not. One of the reasons I called you, Jesse, is because a week ago, our measures, measures of internals turned unfavorable, basically, you know, largely based on some of the things that we're seeing in the interest rate sector. Uh, and so I'm very concerned about the combination of the highest valuations in history combined with the potential for the speculative bit to come out of investors' teeth. Well, you made a couple, uh, several great points there that I that I wanted to to get to, or just kind of rehash real quickly. One is that these valuation indicators are suggesting that we've essentially pulled forward returns well into the future. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, you know, we could be looking at, you know, 10 plus years of zero returns if we're, we're seeing a normalization in valuations over that, that time. You don't even need a normalization. A partial normalization. <laughs> That's right. a problem. Yeah. 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 I mean, if it normalizes, it's going to be way worse than a 0% return over 10 yeah. years. Um, yeah. And that also brings up the, the risk of, you know, uh, of a dislocation, which I want to talk about in terms of your, your market internals. But I also want to, you know, uh, point out that part, part of what I, I love uh, reading your work uh, for is that you you do address a lot of these narratives that, you know, people say, okay, great. Well, valuations, you ha you'd have to go down 70% to get back to normal valuations. But, you know, the Fed is going to prevent that from happening. To me, it was amazing to see, you know, Bloomberg approach Wall Street bets for, you know, quote on what's going on and, you know, a lot of these uh, stocks they're chasing. And they, they only wrote back, money printer go burr, stocks only go up. <laughs> I mean, when the narrative gets that far, it's, it's like, yeah, everybody believes the Fed is going to prop this market up forever. But, you know, like I talked about with Daniel DiMartino Booth recently, the, the Fed has, you know, this is a deal with the devil, not just, you know, with the interest rate game they're playing, but they're, 
when you're specifically targeting animal spirits, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like you're targeting a very fickle, um, you know, thing there and, and, and you're playing with fire. The market internals to you are, are the way you kind of, uh, I guess, would address those animal spirits. Yes. Yes. So, uh, so really, you know, for, for a long time, we talked about our investment discipline in terms of three pieces. Uh, you know, one was valuations, um, and, uh, and one was, uh, market internals, uh, which, uh, basically are the way that we gauge whether people are inclined toward speculation or toward risk aversion. And the third was, um, you know, a, a little piece that we, uh, that we talked about, um, you know, called overextended syndromes. Uh, both of those last two are what I, what I sort of used to put in a single bag of quote market action. Uh, but, but the two pieces of market action, one was market internals, uh, and one was, uh, what I called overvalued, overbought, overbullish extremes. Here's the thing. When people are inclined to speculate, uh, like they were, you know, in the advance toward the 1929 peak and Roger Babson several years in a row said, well, a crash is coming and it may be tremendous. And in 1929, he was right. Uh, and it, you know, the, the subsequent crash easily made his prior, uh, concerns correct, even though they were quite early. Um, you know, and if we look back at 1987, same thing was true. You had, uh, valuations were quite high relative to the prior 20, uh, 20 year period. Um, but they kept on going up. Uh, we certainly saw that in the late nineties. And so finally, you know, when we were, when we were about in, uh, 2006, 2007, I thought, you know, I, I'm a value guy. I came from an environment where, where, you know, a lot of my research was based on value. Uh, and I came from an academic environment where uh, my dissertation advisor, well, uh, I had Tom Sargent, who was uh, essentially, he, he won the Nobel Prize for rational expectations. Rational expectations, let that sink in uh, for a market guy. Uh, I also had Ron McKinnon, who uh, was uh, was a very important um, thinker in terms of uh, what's you know, uh, what's called financial repression, which is essentially what the Federal Reserve is, is, uh, trying to embark on here. Uh, Ron studied that, uh, back in Japan, but I, uh, but I had these people around me, uh, Joe Stiglitz, who won the Nobel prize for, um, for, uh, for information economics, uh, and, uh, Bob Hall, who was the head of the, um, NBER recession dating committee, and uh, John Taylor, who came up with the Taylor rule, that was my dissertation committee. Um, so I came from this background of thinking about, you know, monetary economics, but also rational expectations. And I had an academic's mind toward it that, that well, overvaluation should not at some point be rational. Uh, and that was just not proving out very well. Uh, and so basically in the late uh, 90s, I said, all right, well, how do I actually, from a data standpoint, distinguish between an overvalued market that continues to advance and an overvalued mar- market that drops like a rock? And one of the things that that I, I figured out and, and uh, 
you know, uh, a dear friend, uh, Nelson Freeberg, uh, had a lot of influence on my thinking as well. Um, you know, was, was to think about, uh, the uniformity of the market, uh, how, um, you know, how insistent are investors on driving all securities up? And so what, what I developed, um, was basically a signal extraction, looking at thousands of individual stocks, industries, sectors, security types, including, you know, treasuries, including uh, corporate debt, uh, including leadership, breadth, um, you know, participation, a ton of stuff. But basically asking one question is, do we see uniformity or do we see divergence and deterioration? And so one of the things that, that, that I found was that an overvalued market coupled with, you know, favorable internals, as I called them, you know, tends to be an overvalued market that even gets more speculative. But there was always a limit. And this is where I stepped on the Lego uh, in, in, uh, in this particular cycle. And just it was painful. Uh, there was always a limit in prior cycles. There was always a point where speculation got to a point where it was so overvalued and and bullishness was so lopsided and the market was so overextended in terms of various overbought conditions and so forth that you could define these syndromes that when you saw them, stocks would drop like a rock. And those syndromes were very useful in uh, you know the 2000 2002 crash and the 2007 2009 crash, and uh, in my insistence on testing data against uh, depression era um, uh, evidence uh, after the global financial crisis, uh, they you know those syndromes or as or as best I could proxy them also were very important during the depression, and so they became in this cycle, one of the central pieces of our response. And once the Fed dropped interest rates to zero, oh my goodness, they became useless. And the market continued to advance through again and again, even more and more extreme versions of this. And I struggled and people, you know, to this day, even though we're on the other side of it and we've done quite well over the last year, for example, uh, and even though, you know, 2019 was actually uh, a stock selection issue because value stocks got crushed and it had nothing to do with market action. Um, you know, people have called me a perma bear and I continue to be, a, you know, considered a perma bear. Um, but what actually went went on was in late 2017, I finally threw up my hands. Uh, you know, a nice rational expectations economist, you know, from Stanford with a value bent, finally threw up my hands and said, "You know what? There is no limit to the the recklessness or the to speculative recklessness. There is no longer uh, a reasonable expectation that that." that extreme is too extreme. And so I have to be content not to, to, to say there's a limit, but instead just to say, is speculative pressure present or is it absent? And if it's present, I'm not going to take a bearish stand. 
I might be neutral, but I'm not going to take a bearish stand. And that's actually what we've done since late 2017. And it's it's like I say, it's been it's been quite useful. It's been quite helpful. Uh, it, it certainly was helpful last year. Um, you know, people who don't understand that we do both stock selection and, you know, and, and hedging uh, don't quite understand 2019, because, again, that was a year where um, despite the fact that that I have in, I think, extremely good stock selection record, uh, looking back historically, um, 2019 was not one of those years because value just got crushed. I, I don't know if you remember uh, some of that, but uh, it, it actually created some of the opportunities that we're seeing even now. Um, but uh, but that was the big change uh, to our own strategy in late 2017. So to put it all together, valuations matter enormously, but they matter for long-term returns and they matter in defining what is your full cycle risk, what's your downside risk, right? That's what valuations tell you. They don't tell you anything about what the market's going to do over the next six months or even year or even two years. Well, they tell you a little bit about two years, but uh, they don't tell you a ton. Uh, they really tell you something about the next 12 years, and they tell you about the drawdown risk that you're facing as an investor if you're holding stocks over the cycle. I think the drawdown risk right now is enormous. I think the long-term return is next to nothing uh, over the next 12, 15 years, even, uh, unfortunately. But all that will change as valuations change. It could change a year from now or two years from now, but it's not what you're locking in at these prices. The second piece is, am I in a market where investors are inclined to speculate or where investors are starting to get a little bit of risk aversion coming in. And some of our measures are starting to turn that way. So I'm very concerned about the fact that our measures of internals have deteriorated recently. If they improve, I go back to a neutral outlook at these valuations anyway. Um, if they improve after the market's dropped, that's a great time to get constructive or bullish. And people don't know this, but I've become constructive or bullish or leveraged, in fact, after every bear market in 30 years. Um, again, my big mistake was the third piece, which is overvalued, overbought, overbullish conditions, which in every other cycle worked like a dream. In this cycle, oh my goodness, they did not work at all in the face of zero interest rates because people just had a speculative bit in their teeth that would not drop out even when you got to the most extreme conditions. So those conditions matter to me, but more in terms of, you know, do I have to look more carefully at the data? Am I willing to be neutral or do I want to be constructive? The, those particular conditions no longer drive us to a bearish stance. And that's really what, you know, what, what, uh, shot us in the foot over this, uh, you know, between the 2012-2017 period, uh, is that uh, no extreme was too extreme. So that that's kind of the way that I think about all of these things together. Uh, you know, strong valuations, favorable market action, very aggressive uh, you can be as an investor. Extreme valuations, favorable market action, eh, you can be constructive, but you need safety nets. 
extreme valuations, extreme overvalued, overbought, overbullish conditions, and breaking market internals. <sighs> Yikes. And unfortunately, that's where we are at the moment. Internals could improve. I'll change my view then and, you know, I'll put things on Twitter and so forth. Right now, I'm very concerned about that combination because the three things together, the most extreme valuations in history, deteriorating market internals, and and probably the most extreme overvalued, overbought, overbullish syndromes that we've ever seen, um, you know, that combination is, 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 is quite concerning. It's, it's how you would characterize the most dangerous environments in stock market history, probably. I want to just put it out there that I appreciate your candor, you know, with the, the, the challenge you had uh, that you addressed with market internals. But I do want to say, too, that I think, you know, the, the, you know, the term permabear that, that's been, you know, thrown my way as much as it's been thrown your way probably <laughs> says as much about, you know, uh, somebody's look back period and their, uh, you know, uh, their personal investment process or, or, you know, lack thereof <laughs> as much as anything else. Um, I, I want to just dig a little bit, we're, we're running out of time, but I want to dig a little bit more into these market internals because I think sure. they are, they're critical. Um, what, is there anything specifically that you could tell us about? Are you looking at, you know, percent of stocks above a moving average? Are you looking at, uh, you know, corporate spreads across different, you know, ratings? What, what specifically are you looking at here? Uh, the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, it, 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 like I say, the, the, the measures that I use in terms of internals are, are, are really more of a signal extraction than a single indicator. Um, you know, one of the things about uh, noise reduction, and it is extremely important, whatever field you're in. Uh, so I've published uh, papers in, um, you know, in, in uh, genome-wide association analysis uh, for, um, you know, multiple sclerosis and, and autism and this sort of thing uh, that use the same sort of uh, concept of um, noise reduction. I, I published a paper this past year in uh, Frontiers in Pharmacology on, um, you know, on it, uh, basically, basically uh, therapeutic uh, interventions uh, in the SARS-CoV-2 pathway, the COVID-19 pathway, uh, largely based on the same concept of noise reduction. And that concept is this, that when you have a bunch of noisy data, you can draw a very powerful signal by looking for the common signal across what may be very weak individual sensors, but that that where those sensors are only imperfectly or or maybe completely um, you know independent. Uh, so so if I've got a bunch of different sensors, and and all of them are picking up different you know pieces of information. If I find uh, a signal that is common among them, then I get an amplified uh, bit of information. Uh, there's there's something uh, in noise reduction called the cocktail party problem, uh, where you've got all these people speaking in a room, and you've got a bunch of microphones uh, you know set up in various sides of the room. Well, all those microphones are going to pick up different stuff. But 
it is possible to triangulate the you know the 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 information gathering in such a way that you can isolate individual conversations uh, despite the fact that each of these sensors individually may not be giving you very much. You're looking for the correlated signal among partially correlated sensors. And, and that's probably, um, you know, the, the best way I can describe what market internals are doing. We're trying to not look for, you know, oh, is, is the advanced decline line hitting new highs or not? Uh, you know, or is the, uh, you know, is, are, are stocks participating or not? Or, or what's the number of new lows? All those things are, are noisy pieces of information in themselves, but if you're looking at thousands of stocks and you're looking at industries and you're looking at sectors and you're looking at debt securities and you're looking at other, uh, you know, technical aspects of the market and you're trying to draw a common signal from them, that's really, you know, kind of the way that I think about uh, the world. Uh, the, the, you know, the, what I think about in terms of, you know, pharmacology, for example, in, 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 in COVID is do we see studies that are independent from multiple areas that 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 suggest the same outcome, uh, even though each individual uh, you know study may be rather poor? You know, there's 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 some work that's done on that that's that's just you know meta analysis, but you can actually go a little bit deeper than that in terms of signal you know signal extraction and noise reduction. Uh, same is true for you know for for genetics. Uh, you know, one marker may not give you much information if you only analyze it as one marker. But if you realize that that marker is part of a chromosome and the P, the other markers around it are in what's called link, linkage disequilibrium, basically, you know, they're 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 actually attached to each other and they're correlated, right? Then you then you can get more information from the 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 whole set of them that you might be able to get from one and if you've got multiple data sets you can even amplify that information even more uh and so i know that sounds super geeky but that's the way that i think about the world i think about it in terms of well if i need to get information i don't want to focus on just one piece i want to focus on uh you know i'm okay looking at noisy or imperfect individual indicators. But what I am really interested in is, is thinking about their structure, their relationship to each other, and also you know, whether I'm getting common signals. One of the things that I'm really concerned about about this market is look at the common signals. You've got the lowest put call ratio, for example, since the 2000 top. Uh, if you look at margin debt, and I know you do, because uh, I love your work, Jesse. By the way, uh, you are you are one of the you are one of the uh, rare breathe, breaths of fresh air uh, in Wall Street. Uh, and I, you know, it's it's it, you know, I'm a subscriber to your stuff too, uh, which which is also um, you know, I think a reflection of of my my admiration for for your work. Uh, if if you look at margin debt right now, we're sitting at at three point seven percent of GDP. That's the highest level in history. It's certainly higher than the March two thousand peak, the June two thousand seven peak, the Jan twenty eighteen peak, all of which were spike peaks. You ran up quickly and then you collapsed, uh, and you see that same sort of spike in margin debt, which tells you that not only have people been speculating, they've been speculating on margin. 
This morning was wacky. It's January 25th. We saw some individual stocks that got so illiquid on short squeezes. Uh, it was it was breathtaking. Uh, I was late to this interview because I was selling into that uh, because I own some of those stocks. Uh, not as much now as I did yesterday, uh, but um, you know. But when you see illiquidity, you have to ask your question: the question, can that go both ways? And the answer is yes. And so, you know, so when you look at the valuations, when you look at the margin debt, when you look at the over bullishness, when you look at, uh, you know, measure after measure after measure uh, at extreme valuations, when you look at, um, you know, uh, frankly, Bitcoin, uh, the, 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 that is part and has been part of this uniformity, you know, that when people are inclined to speculate, they tend to be indiscriminate about it. Uh, and so you you saw that go up, but you're also seeing some you know breakdowns there. Uh, I won't, I've I've written about Bitcoin elsewhere. You can read about it in my monthly comments. Uh, I don't want to get too much into it, uh, other than to say that the reason that the U.S. dollar has value is because it's it's tied to something. It's not just because it's scarce or unscarce, uh, and it's not scarce right now, and it's not going to get. Scarcer, uh, <laughs> but um, you know it, it, the the reason we hold dollars is because they're the fundamental you know transaction basis of of the whole banking system. Somebody has to hold them in the form of reserves, and it's the banks, and so they're tied to something. And if you think that governments are going to give up their power of seniorage by creating pieces of paper and getting actual purchasing power from them and the ability to implement fiscal policy. And they're going to surrender that to, uh, to something to which they receive no seniorage. Um, I'm concerned. Uh, so, so, uh, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of, of us dollars. I think, you know, I, I think we'll be creating a whole lot more of them. Uh, I do think that alternative assets are useful, but I, would prefer alternative assets that have uh, a link to the real economy and one that's enforceable. Uh, and I see that in some assets and not in others. That said, what we've seen over the last several weeks, and especially recently, is, um, is a convergent parabola. We have seen multiple assets that have gone absolutely parabolic. You actually, uh, Jesse, uh, sent one out the other day. This this uh, what what is it? Morgan Stanley uh, non profitable tech index. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, breathtaking, breathtaking, right? Uh, you see that in uh, some of the individual stocks. You see that in some of the short squeezes this morning. You see that in Bitcoin. You see a lot of this parabolic action. You see it in margin debt. Um, and so to say people are all in, you you, you see it in put call ratios. Right. So to say people are all in is nice, but it also means that if they try and get out, the liquidity to get out will require someone else who hasn't gotten in yet to get in. And I'm not quite sure that that pool of, you know, eager, uninvested, non-invested, uh, you know, uh, investors is there. 
and I think that's that's pretty much why um, you know uh, when you look at you look at Jeremy Grantham, he said, you know, in your heart of hearts, you have never taken this level of risk, and you never thought you would. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely feels like uh, a crescendo, uh, you know, that we have reached, you know, the late stages of a crescendo in these animal spirits. It's, it's to me, it's beyond anything I've seen before in my career. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to, you know, share all your views about valuations and the consequences of, uh, you know, record highs in a lot of these things and the, the potential deterioration in animal spirits, because it, it opens up the potential for, uh, you know, uh, I guess, consequences for the yeah. speculation that we're, we're seeing here today. And, and it's, uh, you know, I also just need to personally thank you. You're one of the most generous you know, people that I've come across uh, with all of your, you know, your ideas. And, and uh, it's, it's been wonderful to read you for a long time and to finally get you on the podcast to do this. I'm, I'm grateful to you. So thanks. For oh, thanks, time. Jesse. I, I, like I say, I, I, I love your work and, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's a blast talking to you. The, I, I realize that I, I I tend to go off on on tangents. Uh, it's the way that my brain sort of sort of connects information. Uh, but I hope it's useful. Uh, and um, you know, again, I think the 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 big thing is to really think in terms of of the pieces of this uh, that valuations tell you a lot about long term returns and full cycle risk. But, you know, people think I'm a perma bear. I, yeah, I, I don't know how you read that out of my work, especially, you know, since since uh, we changed our, our um, approach in late 2017. Uh, internals matter. You know, the, whether people have the speculative bit in their teeth or not uh, does matter. And we have to watch that even here. Uh, you know, so so I don't go around saying, well, this is the top. I do think that we've got a line down in our near future, but I don't know if it's the top because I don't know whether people get the speculative bit in their teeth again. Uh, and so we have to monitor, monitor that uh, flexibly. What I do think is that over time, if we are disciplined and we're flexible, and if we are willing to take more risk when valuations are reasonable uh, and, and you know investors are inclined to speculate or to take risk, and if we lean to the defensive side, when valuations are extreme and overextended and the bit starts dropping out of investors' teeth, uh, then I think we navigate a cycle rather than thinking that we have to discover some asset that happens to be fairly priced in, a, in, in what you have uh, aptly uh, referred to as an everything bubble. Yeah, and, and I, I encourage everybody to to follow you on Twitter. I think you know, like I said before, you're very generous with uh, you know a lot of this information, and, and people can keep up with your ideas there. It's at uh, Hussman JP. Um, is there anywhere else or anything else you'd like to leave leave people with before we're done? Uh, I would say if, if if I could say anything, it is um, very honestly, uh, we're getting vaccines out. Um, at, at, I think, uh, a better pace in the United States um, in terms of this, this pandemic. But one of the things I'm rather uh, concerned about, uh, totally off of finance, is that 
as we start seeing you know, fatality rates drop and case counts drop, I'm really afraid that people will uh, ease up too soon on their protections, like mask wearing, like distancing, like uh, you know, avoiding uh, forced exhalation in public indoor airspaces, which is really the one that you want to watch out for. Is is um, you know, public indoor airspace. Uh, and being being there a long time, I really want to encourage people to to drag your feet a little bit in terms of how much you back off of containment measures. I want you to you know I, I want you to think really strongly about the fact that as we ease off containment, we also increase infect, infection uh, and and infectivity. Uh, and so, so probably I know this is a soapbox and it has nothing to do with finance, but very honestly, you know, we are, we're trying to vaccinate people, uh, starting with the most vulnerable and working down as we do that, the fatality rates will drop very quickly, but we need to, we don't need to get to 70% immunization for those fatality rates to drop, but we need to get to about 30% before people start, start feeling like, uh, like they, they, you know, start being inclined to get back to, you know, day-to-day life. I really would prefer that people continue to wear masks and that sort of thing much longer, but I really would ask uh, people to think very seriously about, about not relaxing containment until we get uh, a lot of people vaccinated. That will save a lot of lives if we can just be careful but not relaxing containment too quickly uh, while people are getting vaccinated, you know, until we get a critical mass. So, yeah, again, nothing to do with finance, but um, it's certainly on my heart right now. Absolutely. And it's something that we've all, you know, has been uh, affected all of us, you know, dramatically. And it does feel like we're in the ninth inning here. Don't don't quit playing the game. Right. You know, exactly. while, while the, the ball's still on the field. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much, John. I, I appreciate it. I'm grateful to you. And uh, hopefully, you know, we'll be able to do it again sometime. Jesse, love talking to you, man. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.